If it's Sunday, it's Wrestling Night in America here on PWTorchDailyCast.com. Good Sunday evening. I am Pro Wrestling Torch columnist Greg Parks, and we are coming to you on, depending on where you are, uh, either Sunday, March 3rd, or Monday, March 4th. Uh, This is the AEW Revolution post-show. Uh, we want to hear from you. 515-605-9345 is the number to call. WNIA Livecast at gmail.com is where to send your emails with your thoughts on tonight's AEW Revolution show. For the new listeners, first of all, thanks for joining us. Second of all, you can catch us each and every Sunday night, usually at 8 p.m. Eastern, live on PWTorchDailyCast.com, taking your phone calls and emails. When there are pay-per-views, PLEs, special events, what have you, we go on the air right after that show goes off the air, just as we're doing here tonight. And when we do have a pay-per-view or a PLE, uh, I have a co-host from the Torch family joining me. His name is Brandon LeClaire, PWTorch.com contributor. Brandon, uh, thanks for hanging up late with us here tonight. Yeah, glad to do it. From uh, last week, we uh, we were hanging out super early, and now we're hanging out super late. Well, we're hit, we're hitting it all except the normal time. So uh, we, you know, we're covering all our bases here. <laughs> that's what that's what we like to do. Um, we've got some people on hold, and I know it's late, so I don't want to keep everybody um, too long. So let me just let's let's talk about our overall thoughts. Then we'll get right into the phone calls. Um, I thought this was one of AEW's best pay-per-view offerings in a long time i've been kind of wishy-washy on the last uh, couple or maybe two out of the last three um but this was i mean this was vintage peak aew this show i think multiple potential match of the year candidates in this one uh up and down the card i thought it was very well paced and a will pruitt of uh, pro wrestling.net said this is one of aew's best paced shows since 2021 and that's something that i think they've always struggled with in these really long drawn out shows Uh, I thought they really hit the nail on the head when it comes to that tonight. Uh, So strong thumbs up from me on this show. Brandon, uh, what did you think? Yeah, I'm going to uh, I'm going to start this out and plant my flag in the ground early on here. Um, This was the best show in company history. I say that uh, with utmost confidence. I I don't think that, uh, you know, there have been a lot of a lot of good pay-per-views. In, in AEW short history, pay-per-views have never been their problem. TV has been their problem for a very long time. And I continue to be very frustrated by the television on a week-to-week basis. I have given high grades to almost every pay-per-view they've done, with the exception, I think, of World's End and Full Gear. So the last two. Uh, this, for my money, was the best show the company has ever done. Full stop. Yeah, I think there's an argument to be made. Um, you must have a lot better memory than I do because I, my memory for pay-per-views and PLEs goes back maybe a year. <laughs> and there's just so many of them, it's hard for me to keep track. I know uh, so many of them, especially very early on in AEW's existence, sort of ran together in terms of, yep, that's a 9, yep, that's a 9, yep, that's a 9.5, yep, that's an 8.5. And mm-hmm. you know, when they're all that good – it's kind of like picking your your favorite child, right? It's it's hard um, right. because they're they're all really good shows. Um, so what what stood out for you uh, on this show, even above and beyond some of those really good shows that this company has put on in its history? Sure. So the reason that I that I'm saying it confidently this early is just because 
you know, as you know, Greg, I, for the better part, for, for almost the company's entire history, I have been doing the alt perspective reports for, for BW Tours. So I, I tend to remember most of the shows in, in pretty good detail simply because, you know, I'm so in it during the course of the, during the course of the action. And one of my chief complaints about AEW pay-per-views for a very long time is two, two major things. As, as good as the action almost always is, and as much as I enjoy the shows, it, it's that, there's actually three things. So I'll start with number one. Typically, they haven't done a good job at building, building these shows. They're always, they always are filled with great wrestling. But it seems like despite having six, seven, eight, nine, ten weeks to build a show, more often than not, they tend to not announce matches until two to three weeks out. And even though they've been setting some of the stuff up on TV, a lot of the time it feels like they're just throwing together a nine to 10 match card for the sake of having a show that will run four hours and will feature great wrestling. And even though that is always true, there is always a bunch of great wrestling. That isn't something that I get excited about paying for. Mm-hmm. So revolution to start had broken that mold for AEW by announcing the vast majority of the card weeks in advance by building the vast majority of the card for weeks, if not months, better than I think they've ever done. So it it had that going for it already coming into the night. Second, I think that one of the biggest knocks on AEW pay-per-views in the past and something that by and large they've done very poorly with very few exceptions is pacing and letting shows breathe. It started out a little bit rough tonight where you had Christian Cage uh, and Daniel Garcia opening the night, and they went immediately into that second match with Brian Danielson and Eddie Kingston. And I thought, okay, this is going to be breakneck pace. We're not going to get a chance for wrestlers to kind of celebrate their wins and, you know, the the thrill of victory, agony of defeat. You don't get that in AEW pay-per-views typically. And I've always thought that that's a missed opportunity. They did it in that first match where it was a quick transition. But after that, they managed to slow down just enough to make it work. They struck a balance. The action was still fast and furious. They still moved from match to match pretty quickly. But you got those moments after the bell to let the moments breathe and to sell the thrill of victory and agony of defeat. That was really, really important. The last thing that I'll mention, and this is, you know, in part, luck this isn't not something that they can necessarily control but with with the with the point made about pacing the shows i've noticed that with most AEW pay-per-views there's a tendency for crowds to get burnt out for the last few matches because they're getting great wrestling up and down the card and by the time you get to that final hour the 11 the like 10:45 to 11:45 12 o'clock hour on the east coast the crowds start to die out. And even if they're really interested in the wrestlers and really interested in the programs and the matches being put out there, more often than not, they're just spent because they've been seeing this breakneck pace for three plus hours at that point. Tonight, they didn't have that issue. And I don't know if it was a because Greensboro was just incredibly hyped up for this card 
or because they did such a great job building these matches and ensuring that they had a crowd that was fully invested, not just in chanting, this is awesome, and having a bunch of, you know, five-star matches, Mm -hmm. but having matches that had actual stories built behind them. So those three things for me is what set this particular show apart from what you said, Greg. They had a whole lot of eights and nines in their early going. And, yeah, they hadn't been as strong in the last, you know, six months to a year or so. But there were still a lot of good shows in there, and I thought this was the best of them. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure we'll do a deeper dive into what made this show so good for so many people as we take phone calls and emails here. But uh, as promised, let's go right to the phones here. We've got Reverend Keith first up from Baltimore, Maryland. Reverend Keith, thanks for joining us here late on a Sunday night. Uh, what were your thoughts on some of the aspects of AEW Revolution tonight? God bless you both. Good evening or good morning to you gentlemen, and thank you for taking my call. Well, good, good to hear from you, Reverend Keith. Yes, I thought it was a spectacular show spectacular they the pacing the timing of the matches the build everything was top notch top caliber they gave sting the right send-off i became very emotional because i was sitting front row ringside on july 7th 1990 at the old baltimore arena which has since been renovated and renamed cfg arena when sting won his first world title I uh, was tweeting with a gentleman that uh, it was actually in the building with his son, and I was sharing memories with him, and I, and I was saying I was honored to have been there that night, and he said he was honored to be in the Greensboro Coliseum tonight, as well as all the other 14,000 fans. I, I think as heavily maligned gentlemen as AEW is, I think that they did a very spectacular job tonight. Um, I had tweeted just before the main event, and Dr. Kevin P. Catani was one of the ones that liked my tweet. I stated, I said, you know, it's a time-honored tradition that you go out on your back when you are retiring, but it's time to change the narrative tonight. And that's what they did. They had to. If you saw that crowd, they would have rioted if, if, if they had booked Sting to lose. Sting deserved to go out the way that he wanted to go out in a spectacular fashion. Darby basically tried to kill himself on live TV. You know, you saw all the the, the blood and and, and how heavily uh, destroyed his back was from taking that bump on that glass. But they they put it all on the line, you know, tonight. So I thought it was spectacular. And, um, you know, I'm I'm just so happy for Stan because he could still go. Like the fans were chanting, you still got it. He's 63, but he could go another couple years like LeBron James. But um, what were your thoughts on the way the overall um, presentation of Sting from the video, which was excellent, you know, to the um, main event match itself, how that was booked? What were your thoughts? I thought it was tremendous. The the video was very well done. I know there was a lot of speculation about whether AEW would get any cooperation from WWE in terms of uh, WWE allowing AEW to use uh, footage of Sting from WCW. It didn't look like that happened, so it probably made AEW's video department uh, their job a little more difficult, trying to piece together stills and uh, video footage that that isn't owned by WWE of Sting's career. Um, But yeah, you know, the match, I think the the match aside from Darby's glass bump, which 
I get it. They they needed to do something spectacular to take Darby out of the match to turn it into the two on one situation that it turned into with the Bucks and Sting. Uh, aside from that, that match was was about Sting, and it was the focus was on Sting. It was him doing his comebacks. It was him kicking out at one, no selling the table, everything like that. So, um, you know, this is not this is not a version of Sting that I expected to see in AEW. The one who jumped off high places and goes through tables in every match and you know th- there was nothing really prior to this in his career that would lead you to believe that this is going to be Sting style at 60 plus years old um, but you know as far as Sting in AEW uh, I thought this is a, a really nice send off obviously the hiccup there at the end with Sting giving his speech and the show going off the air it's going to be a lot of frustration with that I'm sure but uh, Brandon what did you think of the overall presentation of Sting's farewell here tonight yeah i thought it was uh, i thought it was excellent i thought that they did an incredible job of uh setting everything up with with the initial video package uh and doing the um the the video that they they you know they they were only able to get their hands on so much footage because other companies were not cooperative uh for better or for worse but they did a great job with what they had I thought that the, you know, Sting sitting in the movie theater and, and watching a, a career retrospective highlight was a, a really cool touch. The final moment of him looking in the camera and, you know, saying one last time was excellent. Uh, him being flanked by his sons in, in his previous gear was a really cool touch. Uh, and, and then the, the, you know, the, the layout of the match. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of, the deathmatch style, and I, I've spoken, you know, at, at length of, of why I'm not a, a particularly big fan of Darby Allen, but, uh, you know, for, for the, the purposes of, of what they, what they needed to do in this match, the way that they needed to put the focus on Sting, it, it made a lot of sense. And I, I think that the way that Darby had spoken about this leading into it, the way that Sting had spoken about this, there was an expectation that they would up the ante a little bit. Uh, and, and, you know, that came in the form of glass. That's not something that we see a whole lot of. And, and that was sort of the, the extra piece to the puzzle that I think that they probably felt they needed based on the way that they talked about it. Um, I hope it doesn't become a staple. I hope it's not something that they pull out frequently or possibly ever again. But, um, you know, the, the context of this match, it worked. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I'm with you on that. The glass, uh, I'd be happy not to see that again, especially uh, what appeared to be legitimate glass. I mean, there are ways you can uh, do some Hollywood mm-hmm. magic with, with uh, fake glass and things like that. But obviously that's not Darby Allen style. So uh, Reverend Keith, we'll go back to you for uh, any other reaction to anything else here on the Revolution card. It was good to see Sting's sons come out dressed in his previous gear. Um the one that had the red, white, and blue was the same outfit that he wore here in July 1990. And I remember he came out with the uh, Dudes with Attitudes, the late, great uh, Paul, Mr. Wonderful Orndorff, and the late, great Junkyard Dog, along with the Steiner Brothers, because they fended off the horsemen that night here in the arena. And uh, it brought back a lot of memories, you know. I was really emotionally invested in this, and I just thought that they did a wonderful job. Now, uh, my next point I want to mention is that the Will Ospreay 
Kenosuke-Takesha match was definitely a five-star match. And I hope to see them wrestle again. That was a very good, well-worked match. I mean, you know, from um, all the near falls to the uh, uh, springboard cutters to the Spanish fly, everything just, it was it was like a master class in uh, high-octane wrestling. And, you know, Will Ospreay gives four- and five-star matches on a nightly basis, and he did not stop here. I thought it was a very good match, and I know that um, his arrival is going to turn things up a notch as far as uh, the work rate pace in AEW. What were your thoughts on that match? And obviously that match, at least in my opinion, gentlemen, was match of the night. I agree. Um, I have the pleasure of participating in Voices of Wrestling's match of the year, uh, end of year match of the year countdown where uh, wrestling media types will submit their top 10 ballot for match of the year at the end of the year. And I've gotten to the point where I keep a running total on the notes app of my phone. Whenever I see a match of the year candidate uh, during the year, I'll write it down. Then I'll sit down at the end of the year and and compile my list from uh, that list that I had made throughout the year. And I can tell you that, Osprey versus Takesha went onto my notes for match of the year. Uh, so certainly agree match of the night. And look, Brandon, you know, AEW has gotten a rap uh, to a certain extent for bringing in big names from other companies who have made their name elsewhere, but not really pushing them to the top the way people think they should. I think of Miro. I think of uh, uh, Malachi Black and, and some guys like that who – AEW seemed prepared to capitalize on their stardom, but they, they never reached that higher level. To me, Will Ospreay is a guy you got to put there right away. I mean, he should be coming out on Dynamite Wednesday night, staking his claim for the AEW world title. Uh, there's no building here. There's no working your way up here. He's a guy you got to put in that picture right away, in my opinion. Uh, what do you think about the match and, and the uh, booking moving forward of Will Ospreay? Where should he be on the card? Yeah, Will Ospreay is someone who, coming in, I I was curious as to how, not only how AEW would frame him, but how the crowd would receive him. Now, Ospreay is someone who has earned an incredible reputation on the indie scene and among the diehard wrestling faithful. But unlike a lot of the big names that AEW has brought in, and, and sent to the top relatively quickly. Osprey has never really had mainstream exposure on national American television, save for his brief stint in AEW that, um, you know, where he was heralded as, as part of New Japan and, and wasn't really a centerpiece focus. So I was curious about the framing, of course, but how the fans would receive him. Now, granted, you expect that the majority of fans going to AEW pay-per-views are going to know exactly who Will Ospreay is. But were they going to treat him out of the gate like a major main event star, or were they going to treat him like, here's another guy who we've seen and who we like, but there's a lot of guys here who we like. There's a lot of guys here who can put on five, six, seven-star matches. You know, kind of like a Jay White who came in and very, very quickly was sort of moved into reg- the regular flow of traffic. He did not stand out. 
And I don't think the crowd reactions to Jay White warranted that they do anything different with him at the time. Tonight, to me, told the told the story and sent the clear message that the AEW crowd views Will Ospreay as a mega main event star. And I think that that is exactly how you need to treat him going forward. I agree. He is not a guy who you can just shift into major traffic. He should be someone who stands above and beyond. He needs to be a guy who the the company puts a significant focus on. And I, I, I heard Wade talk about, uh, you know, a while back on, I, I couldn't, I can't recall if it was on a, an episode of everything with, with Rich Fan or if it was on an episode of the fix with Todd Martin, but Wade had talked about, you know, the impending signing of, of free agent um, uh, Kazuchika Okada. And he said that AEW should, essentially be in the in the Okada business for however long that that takes to establish him as their main star and just see what they could get out of him. And I agreed with that sentiment, but I also think that they should be in the Will Ospreay business. I think that he is a guy at this point who the crowd has sent the message loud and clear. He is someone they want to see at a major level. He is capable of putting on high level main event matches with virtually anyone. And I, I think you just have to go with what you have right now and see how far you can take it. And, you know, there's Swerve Strickland, who is still, we can talk about him later, is still going to be heavily involved in the title picture. But Osprey is a guy who I would be aiming to get in that main event slot at All In. And you notice tonight they strategically plugged All In one time, and it was during Osprey's match. Mm-hmm. As for the match itself, I thought it was excellent. Um, probably my favorite of the night for sure. The last five minutes was just absolutely bonkers. Uh, if there's one thing that I didn't love, it was that hit to Kanosuke Takeshita that took him to the mat and forced the referee to check on him. Takeshita put his hands up in what appeared to be the fencing position. Now, based on the way that he finished the match, I'm going to assume that that was not a legitimate reaction, that that was selling. And if that's the case, I don't think that you should mess with that. I don't think that that's something that you should fake tease on television for gasps, for sympathy. I just would not do it. It's too serious. Just leave it out. Yeah, I've heard other men, uh, other people on social media mention that as well. Um, so I, I totally get where you're coming from on that one. Um, Reverend Keith, uh, any final uh, questions or comments for us here tonight? Now, Brandon, you obviously are talking about the, the neck bump where he landed on, the, on his neck. Is that the one you're talking about? No, actually a few minutes before, Osprey caught him with a rolling elbow and – uh, Takeshita crumpled to the mat and he put his hands up near his face and separated his fingers and curled them. And oh, it man. was, it, it was clearly a reference to the fencing position, the, the post concussion symptom. And I, I oh, just okay. like, yeah, providing that wasn't real. I just don't think you should do that. Right. Well, yeah. I doubt if it was real. I was more concerned about the bump he took on his neck 
uh, oh, near yeah, the end. For sure. That suplex. That, he landed flush on his neck, and uh, mm-hmm. that really looked bad. You know, I was concerned about that, and I hope he's okay. I mean, he was able to finish the match, and, of course, the pin came right after that. But that looked really brutal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yes. So my third and final point is I would say that the FTR Mox Claudio match as well as Danielson Kingston would go in that order as far as underneath, as far as the top three. Um, I like how Brian Danielson added a little uh, uh, moxie to his uh, uh, fulfilling the stipulation. He even uh, raised uh, Kingston's arm and also – did led the uh, fans in the armways and cheering on Kingston after the match had ended, and I thought that was kind of cool, um, a la how uh, Jay Uso does with the arm motions with the crowd when he comes out. And that, and then um, if you notice, Brian Danielson was smiling as he was leaving the the uh, arena, kind of turned babyface there for a moment. Um, what were your thoughts on those two matches, um, gentlemen? Yeah, I really like the tag match and and Danielson versus uh, Kingston. I, I don't really know if I liked either one of those so much better than the other to put them at, at number two right away for this show. Um, I think the main event also has a claim to being a potential second best match on the show. Uh, you know, the tag match was one I had been looking forward to because I'm a sucker for traditional tag team wrestling. That's what these guys are really known for, especially FTR and their interactions on television leading up to this have been really good. And then, you know, Kingston Danielson had the story behind it. I really liked the nice touch of uh, going backstage before the show and talking to the backstage interview interviewers about how these men were feeling leading up to this. And, and obviously Danielson after the match, finally shaking Eddie Kingston's hand. Not only that, as you mentioned, Reverend Keith, but also raising Kingston's hand. So uh, both of those were really strong matches, um, you know, with, with strong stories. I thought, you know, the FTR um, Blackpool combat club that had been really uh, developing as a grudge match leading up to this. So uh, I thought, both of the stories were really well done coming into this too, as well, Brandon, uh, any thoughts on those two matches in particular? Yeah, both, uh, both really strong, both really good. I thought that, uh, that FTR and, and Blackpool combat club settled into a, a really good, uh, good groove as it got going. I thought that they played nicely off of, you know, the, the announcers mentioning early on that, there was an extension of 10 minutes available to them in the match because they, they went just over the 20 minute time limit last time. So they were getting 30. I thought that was a nice little attention to detail there. Um, you know, Mox and Mox and, uh, and Claudio having the advantage early on throughout and sort of out tag teaming the tag team specialists, I thought was a nice little touch. Uh, and, and sort of the, you know, when, when Dax came up bleeding heavily from, from, uh, from his forehead, I thought that the, the fire after that, that, that he showed getting in the ring with Claudio and then with Mox was, was really, really strong. Uh, my, my vote for second match, second best match of the night actually goes to Kingston and Danielson. I, um, I was really, really enthralled with this. And I say that as someone who has generally been really sort of, disgruntled and, and disinterested in a lot of what Danielson is doing lately. I, I am a huge Brian Danielson fan. He is, he's one of my favorites ever. And I, I respect the hell out of his 
desire to go out on his terms. And I take nothing away from what he wants to do, which is just go out there and wrestle. You know, he doesn't care about winning. He doesn't care about being involved in storylines. He doesn't care about being in title pictures. He just wants to go out there and wrestle guys who can wrestle well against him. And, you know, the result is usually pretty darn good. But that's not typically what I look for in in my pro wrestling. I am much more, you know, I can see a good match anytime, anywhere. There's there's promotions all over the place that deliver great wrestling all the time. AEW has a ton of good wrestling. I would like to see a more story-driven approach. And that isn't Brian's motive right now, and that's fine. Uh, it just doesn't happen to be for me. Tonight felt like a return to form for the Brian Danielson that I, I you know, prefer, where he's had this sort of long, overarching story with Eddie Kingston, Kingston has sort of been desperate to earn Brian's respect and, and the setup is there where if, if Danielson loses this match, he has to shake, uh, shake Eddie's hand. And I, I thought that they told a really, really compelling story. I thought it was hard hitting. Kingston is always great playing as, as this underdog babyface and and trying to, you know, stay in the fight, stay alive against this, unbelievably talented submission submission specialist and I, I just thought that the, they they played off each other incredibly well got into a really good groove and and had a, a, a really excellent match with a, a good finish now mm-hmm. on the subject of Danielson uh, he you know he did the babyface thing afterward and I I think there was a there was a promo that was posted online I haven't had a chance to watch yet but I, I did see that the two of them were sharing a locker room or, or a trainer's room after the match and having a discussion. So I, I assume that this was meant to solidify Danielson in a babyface position. The problem that I've had with the Blackpool Combat Club throughout all this time is just the insane amount of flip-flopping that they do. It doesn't even seem to be on a feud-by-feud basis at this point. It seems like week-to-week, whether or not we're supposed to take them as babyfaces or heels. And I know that the Blackpool Combat Club's, you know, idea is that they are tweeners in the truest sense of the word. I think that the BCC is basically the 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 thing you can point to for the argument of tweeners just don't work in wrestling anymore. I, I think that they've all lost steam because of the flip-flopping, and I hope that, you know, tonight seeing the, the results of both of those matches, what they did in the aftermath, I hope that's the end of it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's kind of their stated mission is they they will fight anybody. And, it, you know, it kind of depends on who they're fighting as to whether or not you like them. Uh, I'm not really sure, as you alluded to, that's an effective storytelling tool in 2024. Reverend Keith, thank you so much for leading us off tonight. Thank you so much, and you guys have a wonderful week. God bless. Thank you. You do the same. Uh, our second caller up tonight here on Wrestling Night in America is Sean from Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Sean, welcome to Wrestling Night in America. Good to hear from you. What did you think of the pay-per-view tonight? Oh, it's good to talk to you guys. Oh, I have so many thoughts. Oh, my gosh. I don't <laughs> know how I can get all this in. Uh, I'll make it as short as I can. Um, Brandy, you're talking about the, the – I haven't. I didn't like the build to the show as much as you did. I thought it was kind of weak in a lot of spots. You're just talking about the BCC and FTR. The build was really bad to that, honestly. Uh, the match was great, but the build was bad. 
Um, so a lot of matches had that. And I think with the crowd, I think they were trying to calm themselves down getting up to those last three matches because they knew how good those were going to be the way that was going for. And I think they wanted to have energy, like you were saying, toward that because no one, they have died down at the end of, at the end of pay-per-views. I think they wanted to be energetic for those last few matches. So I think that's kind of why the crowd was kind of dead in the middle and then kind of got crazy at the end because it was so good. I think they wanted to be ready for that. So that's kind of my thought on that. As far as the show, it, 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 was, it was a really good show. It, I haven't seen every pay-per-view, so I can't say it's the best. I wanted to talk first going back to the Osprey Takeshita. Obviously, no build. They're just in the Callis family together. It's just a great match. Okay, that, that's, you know, that's whatever. The match was, of course, fantastic athleticism. My problem is, I know we've talked about this before, there's just so much no-selling in these matches. I, I get that that's what they do, the high-flying, the athleticism, the crazy spots. I've seen Will Ospreay enough to really enjoy him, and, and I, I loved him, the promo on Dynamite. I, I, I enjoy him. I, it's, this is not a knock per se. I just think every match with him is going to be this way, and I watched it, and I was – enthralled with it. I was excited for it. I mean, the spots were crazy. They were cool. But, man, they're just flipping back up after getting hit up, thrown on their head and getting one counts. And, and I, I just – maybe I'm in the minority, and, and I probably am, and that's okay. And I'm not saying the match is bad because it was, it was a fantastic match. Talk me off the ledge. Help me see to where this will – because I think this is every Osprey match we're going to see pretty much, unless they have a story that's built in that kind of changes some of it a little bit. But most of his matches, I feel like, are going to be this kind of match. And if, and I've got to get used to that, I think, with him to get excited about every match he's going to be in. Because I, I am. His athleticism is phenomenal. He's great in the ring. He's one of the best I've ever seen just watching him. So help talk me off the ledge. Kind of talk me through some of that. Because that's what I thought watching it. I, I don't think it will be every Osprey match, but certainly the big matches, the pay-per-views, that's his style. And, you know, we saw it in Sting's match. You know, we saw him no-sell going through the table. We saw him kicking out at one. Uh, so this is a cross-generational thing. And you can say, well, that's Sting. That's that's what he does. That's one of his signature moves. You could say the same thing about Osprey. Um, as long as the fans react to those moments in big ways, the wrestlers are going to keep doing them. And tonight, the fans were reacting big to those no-sell spots. They were reacting big to the kickouts at one. And it's part of the ride, part of the storytelling. Does it make a whole lot of sense within the context of, the, of a match like this? Uh, maybe not. Um, you know, you could argue for adrenaline. You can argue for a couple different reasons uh, in the context of a match that uh, the no-selling would come into play. Um but I, I just think we're moving farther and farther toward this being more the norm. Um, and and as, as long as it's confined to big matches and it's not something that he necessarily does every match, TV matches and things like that, I think it's a little more palatable. Um, Brandon, I mean, what, what are your thoughts? I think that, you know, I, I'm not going to sit here and lecture someone who – doesn't like that style because I can completely understand 
why someone who wants a realistic style of wrestling would be taken out of the moment with these types of uh, moments in a match where, where there's, there appears to be no selling and things like that. Um, is there a balance to you that, that needs to be met in order for it to be acceptable to you? Are you just on board 100% with that style and, and ready to go? Are you hesitant? Where, where do you stand on that? So my feeling is it's sort of developed over time and I'll, I'll relate it to something that I think WWE does with, with consistency that I'm not necessarily a big fan of either. I have little things that I, they're in the back of my mind whenever I'm watching shows from a particular company that I've just sort of come to expect. And I acknowledge up front that they are not necessarily my thing, but I try very hard to ensure that they don't take away from my enjoyment because I'm, I'm sort of aware going in that it's a proclivity that is, is sort of inextricably tied to what I'm watching with AEW, it's it's exactly what you're highlighting, Sean. It's the it's the incessant need to to no sell big spots for the sake of these huge reactions, where you just hit big move after big move after big move that should be crushing, and wrestlers in a spurt of adrenaline, kind of as you alluded to, Greg no sell the move and, and hit one of their own. They're, they're sort of trading these, these shots. And that's something I've sort of resigned myself to within the, the, the AEW universe. And so with WWE, I, I liken it to the finisher spamming in main events because they're ought, they're, they're ought to do that very frequently. You know, we'll probably see at WrestleMania in a few weeks. Roman Reigns hit a whole bunch of Superman punches. Cody Rhodes hit disaster kicks and Cody cutters and, and you know, the, the like. That isn't my ideal for pro wrestling, but I can enjoy it in the right context. And I think because I've sort of resigned myself to it being a staple and a hallmark of what the promotion does, I, I try very hard to look at it in a, in a vacuum. So I look at it in a way where, like, this is something that flies in AEW but wouldn't fly in WWE, the same way that WWE does things that wouldn't necessarily fly in AEW. It doesn't mean that I like them or fully excuse them, but I think it helps me just sort of accept their place within the context of the promotion that I'm watching, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Again, everybody's going to have their own degree of acceptance of this sort of thing. Some people are very easy to overlook it and they'll give this match six stars and we'll, we'll move on. Um, and some people will really struggle with that. And, and I think it's, you know, it's one of those things that in this generation of pro wrestling, you better get used to it if you want to watch wrestling because I think it's more and more becoming the norm, at least for certain wrestlers. Um, Sean, we'll go back to you for your second question or comment for us tonight. Oh, fair point. And, and I'll, I will say real quick, like I did, you know, I still 
loved the match, even though I had that while watching it. I still loved it because of the athleticism being mm-hmm. so ridiculously good that I still end up enjoying it. And I was like, oh, this is a great match, but I have my thoughts about it. So the second thing was I wanted to talk about some different stuff that we haven't brought up. Um, I wanted to go to the Tony Deanna match. Again, I think it was put on a very bad spot in the card. It was just kind of in the middle and just got thrown in there to me. And again, the crowd trying to keep their investment in other matches later on wasn't really into this other than the Mariah May stuff, which I thought was cool. That was funny. I, I popped for that. That was good. I was like, is that Tony coming out to roll character? And I was like, no, okay, that's right. Okay, that's funny. But then the match was fine. I wasn't – see, like, in my heart, of course, Greg, I've told you and Brandon many times, I'm a huge Deanna Mark. Like, I'm a huge fan of hers. And so, you know, of course, I'm like, well, you know, I'd love to see them put the title on her. But I knew it was just too early. Like, she just got an AW. Like, I know they're not going to put the title on her right away. She's not hot enough to do that. And, again, with Tony, I'm still so back and forth. I still overall don't like her character having the title. I still am not a fan of it because I just don't think it's – been serious enough. I think the last on collision, I think it got a little more serious and that was kind of maybe hopefully a step in the right direction, but I just don't know. I just didn't like in the interference in the match again, just was like, ah, I just don't like the interference and, you know, kind of was what it was, but what did you think of the match? Where do you, what have you guys still thought about Tony and where do you think, who do you think is next up? Because I'm assuming like I said, with Mercedes coming in here very soon and with, under Rosa, who just seems kind of lost right now, and some other people, Serena Deeb, like she has some challenges. But where do you think they're going? With, what do you think of the match? And where do you think they're going with Tony from here on out? I thought the match was okay. I still think, as much as I enjoy the gimmick of Timeless Tony Storm, I, I agree with what a lot of people have said, and I, I didn't really necessarily agree with it at first. But the more that the gimmick has gone on, the more I agree with it. Is she still hasn't mastered how to wrestle in this gimmick? Like, I mean, this is. This is a, a gimmick that almost requires a different style than the normal Tony Storm would wrestle, and it seems like she's still kind of finding her way in terms of that in-ring style. And I think, it, to a certain extent, it puts a ceiling on the quality of matches she can have. I thought the match tonight was fine. Um, I look at Mercedes Monet in a lot of the same way I look at Will Osprey, where I'm sure Tony Khan is spending quite a bit of money to bring her in, and she should really be vaulted to the top of the card in the same way that I believe Will Osprey should, and Monet should probably beat Tony Storm, and you know I would beat her very quickly, you know, to be honest with you, because that can send Tony Storm down a certain road, uh, losing so dis- decisively and so quickly, and it also would allow Monet to plant her flag in the AEW women's division uh, as the biggest star, which I think she will be coming in right away. So um, those are my thoughts on those topics. Uh, Brandon, uh, what do you think of the match and potential challengers uh, next for Tony Storm? I like the match more in the context of the show overall than I did in a vacuum. I think if if he pulled this match aside and I and I would have watched it again by itself, I I would think that it was fine but not particularly moving. Whereas in the context of the show, the pacing of the show, what had happened to that point, what was still to come, I thought they did a really good job of of sort of uh, presenting a different style, knowing the audience, knowing their place on the card and going out there and having a a strong technical match that showcased 
a lot of what Deanna can do. She hasn't really had long-form matches yet in AEW, so I thought that this was a good way to kind of show her off. I agree, Greg, that I'm a big advocate for the Tony Storm gimmick in general because I think she brings positive attention overall to a women's division that has severely, severely lacked over the course of the first five years of the company. But I am also with you that it seems as though as Tony Khan becomes more focused on presenting a serious woman's product and trying to thrust them closer to the forefront and and make it a, a more viable option that these women could be, for example, in main event positions. I think that it's, it's, it's a disadvantage to have a character like Tony Storm as your leading champion. And that's not a knock on her. It's just the nature of the gimmick. By nature, it is very comedic, whether or not that's the intention or not. So I am with you, Greg. I, I think that as much as I would have liked to have seen Perazzo win here, because I think she's a more serious option, and she would be a very good champion. I think that it would have been a misstep to try to move the championship and establish someone new with that title two weeks before bringing in Mercedes Monet, who you know is going to command the spotlight and immediately be thrust in that position. I think that Deanna would suffer the potential to be lost in the shuffle, even as champion. If Mercedes comes in and doesn't win the title right away, let's say you put the title on Perazzo tonight and you want to establish a healthy reign for her. So you keep Sasha away or Mercedes away from the title for a bit. I think that you're going to devalue the women's championship by doing that and send a message that Perazzo is a step below so instead, keeping the title on Storm here, letting Perrazzo kind of have her chase and, and rebuild her for a potential match with Mercedes down the road. And Greg, like you said, just throw Mercedes in there and just get the title on her right away. She's too big of a star not to. Yeah, it's it's sort of poor timing, uh, unfortunately, for Deanna to come in because if, if Sasha was not coming in right behind her or Mercedes, I would advocate her winning the title here. Um, the, the character that she played in, in TNA and the run that she had as champion there was really good. And I think they could do a replication of that in some ways in AEW. But if you're going to have uh, Mercedes come in and win the title right away, uh, better to do that against a long reigning champion in Tony Storm, a heel in Tony Storm, presuming Mercedes comes in as a baby face, uh, better to do that against her than against Deanna, who at that point would have only held the title for you know two, three weeks, depending on when you do the switch. So uh, just unfortunate timing for Deanna to come in, really, and, and potentially lose out on a, on a top opportunity in the company. Uh, Sean, we'll go back to you for your uh, final question or comment for us tonight about Revolution. Yeah, the first thing I'll say just really fast is we get to see more of the Undisputed Kingdom. Oh, fantastic. Uh, I am not looking forward to that. I thought that was a big misstep tonight in a lot of ways, but I'll leave that for another day. Um, the, the main thing I wanted to bring up was about the, the, the title match. We haven't talked about that at all. Um, really fun match. Um, I, you know, of course, a lot of people, and I'm, I'm kind of one of them. Like, I was fine. I think the build to this match had some missteps, but I think overall it's been good, like asserting Hangman as the heel, the full-blown heel, 
having Swerve, you know, get more into that face character, even though I think he needs to get away from Nana soon. He kind of took steps to that tonight, like not taking what Nana gave him. That was cool, a cool touch. Um, I think a lot of people wanted Swerve to win. I was leaning towards having Joe retain just because I think Joe's doing such a good job as champion right now. I really think he is. Not just because I love him, but just because I really think he is. I think he's just portrayed as a badass right now. I just think he's been so good in his role. And Swerve is definitely over, but he's not over enough for it. I think, oh, he's got to have the title right now. I, I think the match was fine. The one thing I didn't like about the match was when Hangman – you know, started beating up the rest. I know the story ultimately was going to be, which it, which the finish was, have Hangman tap before Swerve wins or has a chance to win. And and, and that part was, was like, okay. But when Hangman's beating up the referees, it's like, dude, you should still want to win. Your goal should still be to win. And beating up the rest is not going to give you a chance to win. So that, to me, even though you're a heel, you're delusional, that's still I, – I couldn't wrap my brain around that. Maybe you guys can help me with that. But – the match itself was good. I think Joe winning was the right move. I'm assuming, if you think this is true, you know, tell me what you think. But I think ultimately, even though Osprey, I'm with you guys, you really got to build around him. I could see them going to Swerve, winning it all in, and then eventually building to Swerve and Osprey at some point. I don't know. Maybe that's crazy. So what do you think about the match? What do you think about the build with all of them? And how do you think the, the match ended? And where do you think they're going from here? And uh, Greg, I, I appreciate you guys staying up this late of an hour. I know it's late, and i got to get up in the morning, so I'm probably going to go to bed here soon myself. So I appreciate you guys, and I appreciate you taking my call as always. Oh, of course. Thank you, Sean. Good to hear from you. A um, couple things that, that stood out to me from what Sean said. Yeah, Adam Page looked pretty dumb um, taking out the referee and then trying to get the pinfall victory without a referee that he took out. And the, even the announcers called attention to that. So, um you know, made him look kind of dumb. Maybe as a heel, that's okay now. Better than looking dumb as a babyface, I suppose. And, you know, I, I think I, I differ a little with Sean on just how hot Swerve Strickland is. Because I agree. I, I think Samoa Joe's been doing a great job as champion. And I'm not sad to see him stay champion. Because I think his promos that he's cutting and just the way he carries himself, um, I, I think in some ways is lifting the prestige of the AEW championship just by the way Joe talks about it and the way Joe treats it uh, and the way Joe carries himself. And so I don't mind that at all, but I do wonder if AEW is potentially missing um, the the apex of Swerve Strickland's popularity because I do think if we're not there yet, we're pretty darn close to it, and, and AEW certainly hopes they haven't passed that point. But um, what, what did you think of the match, and what did you think of the decision to have Joe retain as opposed to having Swerve win the title here, Brandon? It's a timing issue for sure. I mean, I think that you're right. Swerve Strickland is, is probably reaching the apex, the height of his popularity, and, and you want to you want to strike while the iron's hot. You don't want to miss that opportunity and catch him on the downswing. And I think – you know, giving him a, a run with the AEW world title is, is certainly something that they should strongly, strongly consider. I think he's done a pretty remarkable job. And now that he's officially moving into that babyface role, I think that there's, there's going to be a, a fun, a fun story to tell with him chasing Joe, um, mm-hmm. while also, you know, still having Hangman there to, to potentially distract him. Uh, I, I thought that, that keeping the title on Joe tonight was smart because, 
I think it would have been a disservice to Swerve Strickland to crown him as world champion on a night where the AEW title is not main eventing your show, on a night where it unquestionably would have been overshadowed by Sting's retirement and everything that they did in that main event. I, I just don't think that's the message you want to send about a brand new champion, that yeah. he's going to win the title in the semi-main event. Um, so I think keeping the title on Joe here was was the right move. I, I agree with you. Joe has been excellent as world champion. It's been a breath of fresh air following, you know, the, the huge missteps that were made during MJF's title run. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, all around positive there. The match itself, I, I thought, was was good and and was what it needed to be on this show. I thought that they, you know, the, the last few minutes were particularly strong. The, the, the trading of finishers, the, the, the various, you know, coquina clutch attempts by uh, by Samoa Joe. Cage's work with the referees went a little bit overboard to me. Now, see, I, I could get behind the first one. When, when he pulls the referee to the outside to desperately break up Swerve's attempt. That one was fine to me. And if I remember correctly, when he hits the double buckshot lariat and goes for the cover, that at that point is when there's no referee to, to make the count and, and Tony Schiavone makes the claim like, it's your fault, dude. So I, I thought that that was logical enough. You know, he, he pulled the referee out not to specifically attack him, but to ensure that Swerve didn't win the championship. So that that's fine with me. The second one, though, when he just full-on attacks the referee, like, for no reason, that one just seemed like hitting the nail on the head a little bit too hard. Like, at that point, it was abundantly clear that Hangman Page had gone full heel. I, I don't think that they needed that added that added tension. I, I is think this part, Brandon? Just, is this is this part? Do you see this as part of a story with the Hangman character, heel or babyface? Because you know he's come up short quite a bit lately in trying to come up with the the world title, and a lot of that has been his undisciplined nature. Um, is, is this just, do you mm-hmm. see a continuation of that perhaps? I know the announcers certainly haven't hammered that home. So if that is the case, they're really leaving it up to the viewers to make that connection. But it certainly does seem like with, with Paige having so many of these opportunities, especially as a baby face and just always kind of stubbing his toe before he gets to that point, it does seem to speak to, to more of a, an overall undisciplined nature that the character has. Yeah, I, I think that could be that could be the case. But if it is, I, I think you want to you want to sell it harder. I, I think that you want to you want to sell that moment harder on on commentary. And you know that's something that that Michael Cole does exceptionally well. You know, telling the if if there is nuance to get across during the course of a match, you know, Cole is usually instructed and and does that very very well. That isn't something that AEW has has had much success with, and and they haven't really tried it and and haven't really needed to. But this is an area, an occasion where I think it definitely could have helped because Hangman Page has been a nuanced character. There has been times where he has struggled with, you know, the the morality of right and wrong and, and, and whether he should 
serve himself or or his friends and his partners. And and this is one of those situations where I, I think that a little bit more exposition from from commentary probably would have helped and and made me dislike that that ref beat down spot a little less because it just it it felt it felt gratuitous to me in the moment. All right, uh, let's go back to the phones. It's the 773 area code. I believe this is Boris from Chicago making an appearance. Boris, are you there with us? Had to be here for Sting's retirement. Understandable. Understandable. Watching wrestling, wrestling, this was beautiful. Okay. When AEW is on, when AEW gets it right, they get it right. They feel Mm -hmm. like a, 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 uh, uh, on the level of WWE, you know, WWE when they do their uh, shows. Mm-hmm. One thing I I want to say is I think Hangman Page, Warlow, they had a lot of opportunities, and I think it's kind of showing that when they it, when they with other other wrestlers that are really good, they feel they feel like they're uh, in the way, you know, a second fiddle. Because tonight I've I felt. You know, Hangman Page was in the way because I like Swerve and I like Samoa Joe. They do really outstanding promos, and you can see when they get in the ring, it's something special about them. I think Hangman had his chance when before they got the picture. It seemed like Warlow keep trying, and it's just something he's missing. Mm-hmm. But uh, overall, I enjoyed the show, and I was like, oh my god, I got to go to work in the morning. But I had to stay up to see how this was going to end with Sting. Mm-hmm. And, boy, did they do something special and beautiful for this guy. Mm-hmm. And I really hope that due to the fact they like doing, like, comic books and uh, AEW, like, doing, like, comic book like Marvel and taking pages, you know, pages out of the comic book, that I hope Swerve get the Ron Simmons, Ron Simmons beta, remember? So maybe it'll be Swerve and Samoa Joe. And... <laughs> Swerve being a fate, you get that real celebration because they didn't say a lot about the first black champion tonight. And I hope when they start to get ready to actually give it to them, they start speaking in that term. Mm-hmm. What you guys think? And that's it. All right. Thank you, Boris. Uh, appreciate the call. Always good to hear from you. A little blast from the past there. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's important um, to point out, and I think that would be something that Swerve would be very proud of. Um, to to be the first black AEW champion. Uh, one thing Boris said that I thought was interesting too was that that Hangman Page was in the way, in his opinion. Um, would you have rather seen this as a one on one match between Swerve and Joe or Adam Page and Joe, or do you think the the tension between Swerve and Adam Page worked to add to the drama of a world title match tonight? I, I think the whole point was was that Hangman Adam Page was in the way. I think that's the story they were trying to tell. Uh, I yes. mean, Swerve Strickland has been angling I'm, I'm for not sure a world title. I'm not match. sure if he fans were face. supposed to feel that way. I think uh, I think Swerve was, but I'm not. I don't know how how uh, how fans were supposed to feel in that regard. Oh no, I, I mean that like I, I think fans were supposed to feel that he was in the way in the sense that he was 
he as a heel, heel yes. that, that was going yes, to prevent I, Swerve. Yeah, okay, to yeah. prevent Swerve from winning the championship. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think that's what they they wanted and what they accomplished. Um, so, no, I, I I wouldn't have preferred this ha- had been a one on one either way for for a number of reasons. First. You don't want to do Samoa Joe and Hangman Adam Page when when Hangman is in the midst of of a full heel turn, uh, and Samoa Joe is is more of a tweener, but but generally you know closer to the heel side. So I didn't want to see that match, and then I, I don't think that this was the right moment to do Swerve and and Samoa Joe because again. The, the title match was never going to main event this pay-per-view. And so then you're left with, with two options. One, Swerve, you know, eats a pin from, from Joe or passes out to Joe, and that, that probably hurts him. Or two, Swerve wins the championship, and it's not the main event of the show, and it's not the thing that people are talking about when they go home. And I don't think you want that either, especially given that he would end up being the first black AEW champion, and I think that is something you want to highlight and make a big deal out of. Mm-hmm. So... I think that the triple threat was the the, the perfect. It, it was a perfect circumstance given given what the rest of the card looked like, and I thought that they they told an effective story, and you you sort of have you can kind of see it play itself out. This thing started with Swerve Strickland and Hangman Adam Page, and the reason that those two got together in the first place is because Swerve viewed Hangman as being in his way of achieving main event status. In other words, he viewed Hangman as someone who was vying for what he perceived as only one spot at the top of the card. So he came after Hangman. They have their blood feud. Swerve comes out on top. He expects to now get himself a championship match, but Hangman won't stay out of his way. So now you do the the match with all three of them involved, Hangman is the one who eats the pin or, or eats the submission in this particular case. And so now you hope that the next logical step is Hangman is removed from the equation one way or another, and Swerve can finally get his match with Joe. So I thought it was really logical. Yeah. Agreed on that point. Uh, 217, Larry from Beardstown, Illinois, is up next. Larry, thanks for calling into Wrestling Night in America. What would you think of Revolution tonight? <laughs> I enjoyed it overall. Um, first off, uh, Osprey and uh, 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 I always pronounce his name wrong. I'll try, I'll try to get it right this time. Takashita? Takashita. Takashita. Sorry. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Those two are a couple of freaks. <laughs> uh, I've got to give him credit. That was a really fun uh, match to watch. Uh I think they're going to be sore for a day or 20 afterwards now, but uh, I really enjoyed it. And um, was I the only person watching that watched Darby Allen go off the ladder into the glass on those chairs and thinking, why? Just that dumb. Why do it? Yeah, I, I, I... That's that's one of those things, like, I, I understand... I, I don't want to give too much credit, um, but I, I like I said at the, the start of the show, I understand that they needed a big spot to take Darby out of the match temporarily to tell the story of Sting overcoming the Young Bucks in a two-on-one situation. Now, could they have done 
it a way that did not involve glass and Darby tearing up his back? Uh, most likely the answer yeah. to that is yes. Uh, but this is also Darby Allen who we're talking about. Um, he is going to take the biggest risk possible. So not only did he go through glass, but he went through glass situated on uh, across two uh, steel chairs too. So to make it more painful. So, you know, is this a situation, Brandon, where Tony Khan should have stepped in and said, Hey, look, I know what you're going for here, but no, we're not doing that. Um, or, you know, is this, do you think ultimately the, the, the word of mouth and the reaction that's going to come from fans who've watched this match and who watched the clip of it probably on YouTube is probably going to be one of AEW's most played YouTube clips of the month. Does that kind of make up for the, the danger involved in it? I mean, look, I, this is this is probably the the most negative thing I'll say of, uh, about this show, or, or you know about AEW in general during the course of this show because I was so high on this on this event overall. AEW is a place where the inmates run the asylum. I mean, I mean that that has been plainly obvious to to those who watch for for the last five years or so. Uh, this is a company that has has touted itself as the safest promotion in the world, but has nearly killed the Hardy Boys on, on two separate occasions, who has let John Moxley wrestle a match, uh, visibly concussed to the point where John Moxley, of all people, had to go on social media and point out the fact that, hey, that wasn't cool. Uh, there have been a number of these moments over, over the company's history. I, I don't think that Tony Khan is someone who we can expect to police his wrestlers in this way. If they want to do it, they're going to do it. And Darby Allen set himself up for this moment by saying that he would literally die in the ring for Sting's last match if that's what it took. And I think at the end of the day, the Darby, Sting, whoever produced this thing, probably took a look and realized that Darby has done a plethora of death-defying, stupid, ridiculous stunts over the course of his AEW career thus far. And anything short of upping the ante would not be believable for this crowd that he would eliminate himself from the match for several minutes because he's done it all before. So they chose to up the ante with glass tonight. I mean, was it smart? Of course not. Did I think that it worked for the purposes of this match? Definitely. Do I want to see it again? No. Um, but this is just, this is, this is what, this is what this company does <laughs> for better or for worse. Yes. Um, and, you know, thankfully Darby Allen appears to not be seriously hurt from that. Um, somehow he always walks away from these. Uh, you just hope that, that there's not going to come a day where he doesn't. Um, especially as if he keeps pushing the envelope like this. Uh, Larry, back to you. Any other uh, thoughts or questions about Revolution tonight? Well, you talked about it a little bit earlier, but I'm curious as to now, what do they do with Perrazzo mm -hmm. from here? Uh, yeah, I mean, if, if we're if we're going to say, Brandon, that okay, Tony Storm is the champion, mercedes Monet is debuting in two weeks, we're going to throw mercedes Monet into a spot against Tony Storm, 
Uh, certainly, Perazzo. Then you ask, what's next for her? Right? She comes in right away from TNA. Is put into an AEW Women's Title feud very quickly. Uh, a lot of that probably based on her history with Tony Storm and the ability to tell that story. Um, but you know, there are a lot of women right now in AEW who don't have a lot to do. I think you mentioned Thunder Rosa earlier. Obviously, Dr. Britt Baker still on the sidelines. You've got Soraya, who is more of a third wheel in this Ruby Soho, Angelo Parker storyline. So there are a lot of women. Uh, Jimmy Hayter is going to be coming back from injury at some point. So uh, where is the TV time going to come from to fit all of these women in? Is Deanna Prazo someone who ends up going to ROH maybe for a little while? Uh, what do you see as next on the horizon for Prazo? I hope she doesn't get relegated to ROH. I mean, I, I think that she is someone who is worth investing the television time into. And I view her as a future credible challenger for, for Mercedes Monet down the road, hopefully, uh, once you get the championship on her. I, I think it's really about dedicating meaningful TV time to the women to ensure that they're able to continue to develop and, and, and have opportunities to grow outside of the title picture. You see it in WWE in, in recent years, especially since Levesque has taken over where, you know, not, not every woman has a, has a strong focus or a strong direction, but there is stories being told outside of the main championship. And AEW has really, really struggled with that. But I'm hoping with the addition of Mercedes Monet, who is absolutely going to be the squeaky wheel and is going to push for, for women's wrestling. Uh, in, in fact, we've already heard the, the rumblings and the rumors that she's pushing for a, a women's wrestling show, which honestly, for, for my money, I would just, I would just convert rampage. I mean, if you're going to, to dedicate a, a full show to women, they don't need a rampage. I would, I would take that hour, but Regardless, whatever the case may be, I, I this this is entirely dependent on how committed Tony Khan is going to be going forward. There is a chance, absolutely, that Perazzo gets lost in the shuffle. My hope is she doesn't, but they've got to prove it now. I mean, they they've got to prove that they are willing to invest the time and energy into this division. Uh, Larry, do you have a final question or comment for us tonight? No, I think that'll about do it. Thanks uh, for taking my call uh, tonight, guys. And just want to say that was uh, overall a good, fun show. And uh, it'll be interesting to see what AEW can do now with uh, the tag belts. Uh, I'm guessing some kind of a tournament. And uh, that could actually give them some decent programming if they do it right. Thanks for taking my call again, guys. Of course, Larry. Thank you for calling in. I do believe that uh, Tony Khan in the post-show presser has officially uh, vacated the titles with Sting and Darby Allen as champions and Sting retiring. The belts have been vacated, and I believe he has announced a tournament uh, that will take place to crown a new AEW Tag Team Championship, a set of Tag Team Champions. Uh, back to the phones. The 305 area code is DJ from Miami. DJ, welcome to Wrestling Night in America. What did you think of Revolution tonight? It's pretty good. Uh, I do have to say really fast before I start my question. I thought for sure at the end, for sure, that, I don't know, Ric Flair was going to do some nonsense craziness, but <laughs> I was wrong. <laughs> for <Yeah>. sure. <laughs> there was that fear. 
Yeah, I was like, oh, boy, here we go. When, especially when he called out Rick, I was like, oh, boy, yeah. <laughs> yep. But, you know, they could have did something with the, you know, the. I think they instead of doing the thing with the glass, they could have did something with, with Flair. I don't know. But my first thing is going into, like, the main event, it's just like, I, I don't know. Like, they don't really have a baby face, okay? I don't know if you guys noticed, but Warlow cut uh, pretty much baby face promo last week. I don't know if you guys really noticed that. And then he won today. Like, okay. So, they're going to do the dance with him and Joe again? Like, with a belt? Like, he's not a real baby face. Like, there was Strickland. He, you know, he's with Nana. It's like, they need a 100% white baby face to fight Joe. And all these, like he was saying, in betweeners, like, it's not the same as a real baby face going into the fight. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I don't know what they're going to do, but at the end of the day, is I don't know about Warlow's going to be champion or not, or they're going to wait for another day for Strickland, but we need a real babyface like Cody. Yeah, Brandon, one of the matches that we haven't talked about yet is maybe not so coincidentally one of my least favorite parts of this show, and that was the eight-man uh, match to determine – the next challenger or a challenger upcoming to the AEW champion. It was a scramble match won by Wardlow. Um, I wasn't a huge fan of that match, probably my least favorite match of the night. Uh, But Wardlow versus Joe, I mean, seems to be on deck for some point in the future. They didn't announce a date for that match. Wardlow is still connected to the uh, Undisputed Kingdom, which is a heel group. So, uh, what, talk me through what the storyline is here. You know, is Wardlow going to play babyface while he's part of this heel group? Is he going to cut loose from the group? Is is Joe going to be more of the babyface? Is just this cool killer heel guy that just the fans turn babyface? How do you see that developing? I think this is probably a TV match. Um, I don't know how long they'll give to, to build it up, but with everything going on with Swerve still and, and a pay-per-view coming up in late April that was announced officially tonight. Mm-hmm. I think that, that the, the, the match with Wardlow is, is probably going to be a TV match. Uh, I mean, they could, they could even do it at big business. I mean, if they want a, a, a hook aside from the unannounced debut of Mercedes Monet, I mean, they're, they're probably going to want some matches scheduled for that show going in to, to make it feel like a big card. So, um, I, I, I certainly see that as a possibility. Um, so I'm not, I'm, I'm not too caught up in the, the heel face designation because I think that they, they can get away with a little bit more ambiguity when it's just a TV main event. But I think Joe, Joe is a tweener. He'll, he'll lean baby face for, for that particular matchup. I didn't necessarily view the, the, the Wardlow promos as, as being babyface promos or rather just more statements of purpose and the crowd, the crowd, you know, generally, they, they've generally liked Wardlow. So, I mean, aside from the actual heel turn of him joining Undisputed uh, Kingdom, I think when he was by himself just cutting a promo that was one of the better ones of his career, all things considered, I, I think that they, you know, gave him a favorable reaction. But I, I I don't expect him to be cheered against Joe, especially if members of Undisputed Kingdom are at ringside. Um, so I don't think that that's too much of a, of a concern. I, I do think that there is some – 
level of it it it's hard to undisputed kingdom for 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 my money is is one of the the result of one of the worst angles that that AEW has committed to long term i mean if I, I think if you go back and you look at the adam cole mjf story and the devil storyline and everything that it led to I think that the amount of damage that it did to the weekly product, to the pay-per-view product, to the company as a whole, it, it's pound for pound probably the, the worst angle that the company has done, um, at least the most impactful negative angle the company has done. And the Undisputed Kingdom is having a hard time shaking that connotation. I don't think that the crowd buys them as legitimate threats. Roderick Strong winning the title clean tonight was a step in the right direction there. But I don't see Wardlow having a ton of momentum challenging for the world title. So I, I expect it's just a Joe win and we move on. Uh, but that, that begs the question, you know, where does it leave Wardlow? Because the statement of purpose for Undisputed Kingdom was that they get all the gold. And I just don't think that he fits in the plans right now. Yeah, I I mean, I would be remiss if we didn't mention the return of Kyle O'Reilly here tonight, who appeared to be, after Mm -hmm. a a brief tease of a swerve on the side of the Undisputed Kingdom, though he did whisper something to uh, Roderick Strong that we'll probably have to wait until Dynamite to find out the context of it. Uh, But uh, that's that's another aspect of this uh, storyline as well to to mention. Uh, DJ, your second question or comment for us tonight. Second thing is uh, tag team champions. I was very upset that FDR lost to, of all people, Moxley. I understand one, one-on-one, but when they're a team, they should always win. You know, I just don't like this, especially going into this thing that now the belts are ready to be won by certain people, and they're one of the better teams out there. You know, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, that there is not that many good tag teams there, and it's really hard for Tony to build a good tag team you know, up there and build it to the top. I don't know what they're going to do with this tag team, but I just hope they don't give it to the Bucks or some nonsense. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, you look at the situation here, FTR versus BCC here, Brandon. This was going to be looked at as a an opportunity, I think, you know, when, when you have – when you book Sting and Allen to retain in the main event, knowing that you're going to be needing a new set of tag team champions sooner rather than later, and then you book uh, Claudio and, um, and Moxley to beat FTR, that probably tells you they're a pretty strong contender to end up with those titles, certainly stronger – than FTR, unless it's the WWE-style booking where you have somebody lose before they win a big match, um, which I don't agree with, but I digress. Um, you know, the Young Bucks, I think, would be in that conversation as well. Um, what do you make now that the tag titles are really up for grabs? It's going to be a tournament. Uh, how do you assess the chances of some of the top tag teams in AEW? Is it FTR, Claudio Mox, Young Bucks as the top three, and then the field, uh, the rest of them? Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, they're they're the teams that have been most heavily featured. I I'm not sure if we'll see like a return of of Big Bill and Ricky Starks. Uh, that that's always a possibility, but I don't. I don't see them being, you know, significant threats to, to win the tournament. Um, 
I, I was someone who was a pretty strong advocate uh, initially of the Young Bucks going over tonight. I, I thought that, you know, uh, just the tradition, first of all, of, of going out on your back was something I thought Sting would, would probably want to maybe want to do. Uh, and then just also the, the, the benefit that it would bring to weekly TV, uh, the Bucks just healing it up with those championships. In, in actual practice, though, I, I was totally fine with, with what they did. I, I think that, you know, seeing the way that Greensboro was reacting, how much they were into the match, what, what the, what the night, how the night had played out, I, I think Sting and Darby going over was the right idea. And, and by that token, I, I think it's still, accomplishes a lot of what I thought were positives about the Bucks winning, which is the sense that it creates compelling television because you're going to set up a, a, a tournament with a lot of top teams that can presumably have some really good matches. The young Bucks will obviously be in that match. They can continue to get mega heat, which I, I think is, you know, not, not really in question. And to, to me, I, I still think you go with them. I mean, I, I think, they're they're unquestionably even in defeat getting a rub from Sting and Darby here, having having been in the main event of Revolution. They feel rejuvenated, revitalized. I think this is the most entertaining they've been in a long time. And I think you know if you put the championships on them and you treat them like you know just these cowardly, dastardly heels that use their influence and power to to put themselves in advantageous positions, I think you can have some pretty compelling TV. And I, I especially like the idea of someone like Moxley and Castagnoli facing off against them once the, once the titles are established, because then you're firmly rooting BCC as, as baby faces, which I, I think is how they should be aligned. And uh, DJ, back to you for your final question for us tonight. Uh, I, one thing before I go <laughs> to my last thing, I think Sting might come back because he got such a good, you know, he's, Still healthy and everything, so we might see him again. <laughs> My last thing is we have to go across the street. I, I have to. Nobody talked about this because of the pay-per-view, but the Rock's promo was all over the place. He said some craziness. That I didn't like how they, like, beeped it, and then he said some stuff, and then they, he sold out. and it, it, the, the promo was everywhere. It was just so strange how, like, they did this for over 20-something minutes, and it was like... Wow, man, they could have they could have definitely pulled this out for another, you know, did a little, little, little. But he said a lot too soon, too fast. I don't know what do you guys really think. The promo was kind of pretty crazy. Yeah, we'll certainly get into it more next week um, as our eye turns toward WrestleMania a little more. But um, that promo on SmackDown, I think that the segment lasted about 40 minutes all told. And it, it certainly got people talking. I mean, that, that's at this point of the the year, that's kind of what you're looking for. It's WrestleMania season. You you have The Rock. He might not be on every show leading up to WrestleMania. So when he's on the show, you want to take advantage of it, even if it means longer promos. Um, I, I think The Rock is sort of enjoying being a heel again <laughs> and, and taking it out on the crowds and just interacting with the crowds that way. And when you have one of the biggest movie stars in the world who, oh, by the way, now just happens to be one of the board members of TKO, uh, 
they get a little more leeway than than other people do. And if they want to say certain things in their promos that others wouldn't be able to get away with, you let them. And if they want their promo segments to go a little longer than others, you let them. And so I think that's kind of the situation we're running into with The Rock here. Uh, Brandon, what did you think of the segment on SmackDown with The Rock? Yeah, I saw a lot of uh, a lot of Twitter discourse um, over the last few days. Uh, it's the best kind of discourse, Naomi Twitter discourse. Um, uh, yeah, uh, of course. <laughs> um, and it's certainly certainly not hyperbolic in nature at all. Uh, oh, don't never have to worry about that. Um, yeah, as just as I about to say, Naomi is ruined. Um, <laughs> that that's that's the discourse that I was referring to uh, because she received the quote unquote jobber entrance. Um, I, yeah, I, I'm not worried about I'm not worried about Naomi. I think she's in a fine spot. Uh, I think that uh, the the jobber entrance is not something to read into. The segment went long. Uh, it's a it's a huge deal promoting the WrestleMania main event. Big whoop! It's going to happen. Um, I, I really liked the promo, and I say that with the caveat that I, I also watched The Rock's 21 minute Twitter promo that he cut earlier on Friday and did not like that. I thought that it was uh, overwrought. I thought it was too long, could have used an editor. There were some snippets of things in there that I really liked, like him explaining, you know, the the history of him and Cody and what was said during that conversation and what was exchanged between them when they hugged in the ring, when Cody left the the floor for him and, and relinquished his title match. Uh, but but overall, I, I thought it it, it was uh, just a little cringy at times. I, I thought it was rock overindulging, um, and I thought that the SmackDown promo took a lot of the best parts of what he said on Twitter, condensed it down, made it work for TV, and accomplished a whole lot. So first of all, they they set up the tag team match and they gave stakes to it, which I think was very important. It sets it up as a big deal, a big main event. Um, they played up the the tension between Rock and Roman, uh, whether it was Rock uh, Roman grabbing Rock's arm before he does the, the "if you smell" catchphrase, or Roman looking dejected as Rock makes his long entrance to the ring. All really, really good stuff. And finally, by having Rock uh, acknowledge Roman, it puts some shine back on Roman because I think that in the last few weeks. He's been big-footed by The Rock, and that's a problem because at the end of the day, Roman Reigns is still the main event of WrestleMania against Cody Rhodes. And the last thing that you want to do after building Roman Reigns to this point for the last four years is devalue him at the last moment when you need to get every last bit out of him for Cody Rhodes. So I thought that they had a lot of goals and a lot of things to consider going in, and they hit all of them. Awesome. Uh, DJ, thank you for the call this week. See you next week. All right. And Brandon, we'll end the show tonight with an email uh, from JB from Detroit, who we have not heard from in a while. Always good to hear uh, from JB. So uh, we'll get to his email and his reaction to Revolution tonight. He says, uh, first is a question, and then it's just his thoughts so uh, let's run down the thoughts first and then i'll take the question last even though that's first he says the pack return vi- uh, vignette that they played during zero hour was very well done i'm excited for pack's return and to see who his first feud might be uh 
he's another thought is uh, I assume we're getting Joe Wardlow at Big Business. I'd imagine Joe will be playing the obvious babyface in this scenario. What's next for Hangman and Swerve? Perhaps another match between them at Big Business as well, as I imagine they'll want to stack that show. I wonder if the return of Kyle O'Reilly as a potential adversary to Roddy Strong in the Undisputed Kingdom could potentially inject some life into this seemingly flat faction. Kyle O'Reilly seems like he could be an adequate foil to the group with both Cole and MJF currently sidelined. I think that when AEW runs pay-per-views on Sunday, they should move the main card start time to 7 p.m., or they should trim a match or two to make it more consumable to people who have to go to work or school early the next morning. Ha! I have to go to both. Uh, But anyway, uh, he says, I have a feeling that the Max Caster slip-ups in his raps have been intentional. The fact that Jay White is one-upping him as the leader of the Bang Bang Scissor Gang is getting to him. Could this ultimately be leading to a double turn with Bullet Club Gold going face and the acclaimed going heel? I'm actually in favor of this as I think that both groups need a refresh and Jay deserves a greater push. I thought it was interesting that they put the BCC over FTR in FTR's home state of North Carolina. Will Osprey truly got a superstar reaction from the crowd tonight and he's being treated as such by AEW. The sky is truly the limit for him and I'd be surprised if he isn't AEW champion after Wembley. All of the little callbacks, video packages, and memories made the night truly magical. AEW truly did a great job giving Sting the proper send-off that he deserves. That Darby spot through the pane of glass may be one of the craziest bumps I've ever seen. Was the match overbooked? Probably. Was I on the edge of my seat the entire time? Yes. And finally, his question, are you at all surprised that Adam Copeland wasn't involved in the Christian-Daniel Garcia match, either during the match or post-match in any capacity? As always, love the show and go VIP. Thank you, JB. PWTorch.com slash go VIP to check out uh, all the VIP access you can get from the torch. I think Copeland had been taken out by injury. Hadn't he uh, in the lead up to this? Um, I, I feel like that was a TV angle that they did. So that could explain him not coming out during Christian and Daniel Garcia to at least even the odds. Yeah. But um, Brandon, any, any reaction to that? Do we do? Yeah. Do we know, is the Copeland injury legit? And if so, do we know what it is? I haven't heard it's legit. Um, I, so I'm, I'm okay. still assuming it's an angle. But uh, that's one match we haven't talked about yet. Um, so your thoughts on Copeland versus uh, Daniel or I'm sorry, Christian versus Daniel Garcia that opened the show. And anything else that JB brought up that you want to touch on? Yeah, I thought that the, the opener was good. Uh, they they certainly benefited from having a hot crowd. Daniel Garcia uh, was was the first baby face out, and uh, he he soaked it in and and got a really nice reaction. I mean, Christian Christian Cage was his normal dastardly self. Uh, it's hard to remember the major beats of the match because at this point it's been so many hours since <laughs> since it occurred. But uh, I I do I do recall liking it quite a bit uh, for for what it was. Um, the the uh, the the Nick Wayne you know Nick Wayne getting his comeuppance from from Garcia on a couple occasions and then the you know the the, the finish that you would expect from a patriarchy match um, it, it it worked I mean I expect that we're going to see if there is no injury to Copeland that that we'll see you know him return in in relatively short order and we'll return to that program um, as far as other points that that JV made I, I certainly would uh, agree that. There, if AEW runs pay-per-views on Sundays, there there should be cons- some consideration given that they do always run almost the entire four-hour length. And and tonight, 
they sort of ran into the the blunder of of going overtime and and having to shift the final few minutes of of Sting's farewell speech onto a YouTube video, which was very much unfortunate given how how good and how well paced the show was overall. I, I think that shifting an hour ahead is is a way to combat that, but also yeah, being a little bit more tight on the card. You didn't need the scramble match tonight. It was added at the last minute. It was originally Meat Madness. I think that uh, I think everyone would have been just fine without it. It would have been a tighter show. Sting could have finished his promo, and uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, agreed. Uh, as as we're going on uh, one thirty six in the morning here on the East Coast, and not to be up at uh, you know before seven o'clock for for work tomorrow. So yes, I, I wholeheartedly agree. More Saturday pay per views or start at seven p.m. I am on board with that. But uh, hard to argue with the content we got here today on the show, Brandon. Uh, thank you so much as always for joining me. Uh, before we let you go, go ahead and plug social media and what you do for the torch. I know you had the opportunity, as always, to cover this in real time, just as you do all the WWE and AEW pay-per-views and PLEs. Sure. Yeah. Uh, on a on a personal note too, I often plug when I when I talk here on these post shows with you, Greg, that you'll you'll find you'll occasionally see me talk things like uh, movies and and football and and music on on my Twitter and my social media. And so I will, I just want to mention a, a really cool personal thing as as far as it relates to worlds colliding. Uh, just a few weeks ago, um, my favorite band, uh, the Wonder Years, were announced as the uh, having written the official theme song for this year's NXT Stand and Deliver. Being a Philadelphia band, it made sense that they were tapped in by NXT Loud. And so I got a brand new song out of them for Stand and Deliver. And then tonight, that excellent, excellent Sting promo video package that aired just before the main card kicked off was soundtracked by my second favorite band, Manchester <laughs> Orchestra, and their song was Silence. So it was super, super cool to see two by two favorite bands who are not any way directly involved with pro wrestling suddenly in the span of two weeks become very involved in pro wrestling. So that was wow. very, very, very neat. Um, but uh, you can you can follow me on Twitter at BeLeClaire12. Uh, like I said, I talk movies and music and wrestling and football, uh, mostly wrestling, though. And you can follow my coverage on PW Torch. I do the alt perspective reports for all WWE PLEs and AEW pay-per-views. And then, of course, my newest gig is joining Greg for Wrestling Night in America after each of those events. Yes, and we are more than happy to have you here uh, staying up late with us uh, on each one, or, or getting up early in the case of last weekend for uh, Elimination <laughs> Chamber. So, uh, Brandon, good to talk yeah. to you here again tonight on uh, Wrestling Night in America for AEW Revolution. And uh, you can join us each and every Sunday night, usually, again, 8 p.m. Eastern, pwtorchdailycast.com. Be a part of the show. Call us up, 515-605-9345. Send us an email anytime. Uh, we got a couple emails from Dustin that we're going to get to, WWE Focus, next week. That address is WNIALivecast at gmail.com. I am Greg Parks, PW Torch columnist. I have a full-page column in each and every Torch newsletter. This coming week is going to be on Sting and my personal memories and recollections and remembrances of Sting. So you can, uh, if you subscribe to the Torch newsletter, you can read that. Otherwise, you can hear my reading of my column on my uh, VIP audio show, Greg Parks Out Loud, for 
pwtorch.com VIP members. You can follow me on Twitter at Greg M. Parks. Thanks, everybody, for listening, whether you're staying up late with us and listening live or tuning in and listening on your commute to work, maybe. (laughs) Whatever the case may be, if it's Sunday, it's Wrestling Night in America.